This is Joe Chappelle, director of the episode. I'm George Pelicanus, writer of the episode. I always get a little queasy when I read a script and first thing up is a dog. <laughs> yeah, I like to throw those in at you, Joe, just uh, make the hours long. <laughs> Actually, this, uh, this shepherd was pretty good. Did things on command well. This entire teaser, as I remember, was shot. We did this all in one day, including all the interiors. And I think we ended that day with the scene later on in the episode where Bubbles has his cart and he's driving on a street corner. But this is all done basically in one day. Which is saying a lot because a lot of people don't realize how many pieces have to go into a, uh, a sequence like this, how many setups and Absolutely. so Absolutely. Like that shot right there, we laid, I have to compliment Rodney French, our ace uh, key grip, he, he laid over 100 foot of dolly track. There's some big dollars, dolly moves from outside the fence looking in as the guys come running in. That took a long time to set that up, and it was—it's a great shot. But it's those kind of things you don't realize when you watch it. It's like over a hundred foot of track, with two cameras going. So what we're playing here is that Michael is being pursued, and uh, you, the impression is that he's in danger. Right. I, I was always not concerned, but I always had the question: is like when he walks into that close-up we just saw and you cut to his point of view, which is that corner of the room, the idea behind the beat is that he's got nowhere to go. There's no escape. And I just, that's one of those questions that when you're directing, it's like, well, is people going to get that, that he's, he's blocked in, there's no escape? Chris here's going to get that same point of view. And that's just to tell us that there's no escape. Mm-hmm. And I think this also worked pretty well in terms of, for the audience, that you really think Chris and Snoop are out to get Michael here. I think it was set up in the previous episode that that's what's going on. And then we turn it around, flip it. What's next? What's it ahead? I'll keep it quick. Not yet, motherfucker. Shoot live rounds like paint. Boy, you beat shit. You hit. Of course, it's paintballs. Yo, but these really do look like blocks. And the end of this yeah, kind of figures into the whole idea of the season, which was education. Right. You're close. Aim for the head. And going back to the very first scene in the uh, hardware store of the first episode where Snoop's getting educated about the nail gun. Yes, getting schooled. One thing I wanted to say while like, these credits run right here is one of the things I love about directing the show is there's a beat in the teaser we just saw, and it was in the script, so George, you wrote it, but that's what I love about the storytelling and what's great about directing the show is you know, we, have, we brought Michael in. He got he was still, when he was still outside, and he runs in the corner there. He's he stopped. And he picks up the rag. We never see what he does with the rag. Then we go to Chris and Snoop, and they come running down. And then we have there's that shot where we're inside, see the crack glass, and they look at it, and nod, and he's and in that moment, you know exactly what happened. What we didn't show, but you totally get what actually happened. And that's there's a lot of that storytelling. That kind of storytelling in the series as a whole. And I just, that's why I love directing it. And you guys write that in consciously, because that was definitely in the script. But it's just, it's just a great way to reveal information and to tell a story. Right, at this point, we're really trusting in our audience, too. Be safe. 
Uh, George, I, had a, I do have a question for you because on season three, which which was my first full time on the show, you were a producer. Mm-hmm. You were here day in and day out. This season, season four, you were not on as a producer. You were writing a book, but you still wrote the episode. How difficult, or was it? I mean, was it refreshing in a way? Not you know having a whole season to sort of build upon to when you wrote it, or was it? Did you miss some of the stuff that you had being a full time producer? I was never more engaged when, than when I was on set in season three, and, and I knew exactly how the characters would be speaking based on uh, what the actors had done day to day and and knowing how to write for production and knowing the strengths of your crew and so on and, and how to write the scene so that you're not getting out of there at four or five in the morning every night. You know? Right. And so when you're not in that, it's a little bit more difficult than it was when I was when I was on there all the time. You going inside this one, too? I'm do the whole block. It's bad enough you pop the top off a... Now, obviously, you probably watched the episodes, like producer cuts, up until this point. But was it... Why am I trying to ask this, I guess? Like, for the kids, like, you because you weren't involved in the casting of the kids. Right. And they were, like, brand new to you. There was no history there. How did you approach yes. those guys? Watching the episodes over and over again that had been shot. And also, um, you know, living where I live and, and having teenage sons and so on, uh, drawing from that, drawing from um, the environment that I'm currently in uh, with kids that age, helped me write them when it came time to do that. Yeah. One of the things we did with the kids, which I thought was... Was was smart on our part. Was we took a page out of the. I think we read somewhere that when they were making the movie, the remember the movie City of God, mm-hmm. and the, those amazing performances by those kids in that movie. What they did was they set up a school, like six months before they started shooting, and brought them in and worked with them continuously. We didn't have that luxury of having six months in advance, but we brought on uh, Robert Chu, who plays Proposition Joe in the show as like an acting coach, acting trainer for all our kids. And actually, he's got, he got so good at it, we would bring in day players, too, for Robert to work with. And uh, so a script would come out, and then Robert would meet with the kids, and they'd go over the scenes, and he would just get them really prepared for each day they showed up on set. You know, when, when uh, the season was, when I was told what the season was about and we're dealing with kids, it sounded exciting, but again, it's not that's like working with animals, but you're working with kids. It could be very dicey. And I have to say, Robert got these kids so prepared, they were always word perfect on set. He never waited on them. It was um, it was pretty amazing. And just that he was able to train them so well, or not train them, but prepare them so well, really helped us get through this season. Because I was just dreading some of these days, because like some days it was just all kids all the time. And they were all great. I mean, in terms of just knowing their stuff and knowing their lines and being prepared, I wish the adults were as prepared as the kids were. Mm-hmm. That's a simplistic view, I think. How would you complicate it? As president of the school board, I'll argue this is a bookkeeping issue. Yeah, we're really fortunate with the four lead kids. Yeah. They just did an amazing job. All, and they connected with the audience to the degree that it just elevated everything, I think. Um, you know, I can say this because I wasn't a producer. i got to say I think this was the, we were at the top of our game mm-hmm. in, this, in this particular season. It would be very hard to top season four of The Wire, as far as I'm concerned. Get it? No one's responsible. Not, not the school board, not anybody on North Avenue, not Clarence Royce, not the city council, no one at this table. Fine. So what's our next move? 
I don't have much to say here, Joe. You know, these scenes with guys wearing ties sitting around at the table talking. <laughs> I don't even think I wrote this. <laughs> I don't remember. Tell everyone, schools, police, fire, public works, they have to hold the line for This guy's a good actor right here. Ow. Yeah, Neil. I was trying to clean up the streets campaign. I just got done promising the world to every cop in the city. Annapolis, you go beg his Republican ass. Hmm. That sounds familiar. That sounds familiar. Now, did you introduce the the farmer in the Delphi? It was in three twelve. The when he was walking was that introduced even earlier in the show? Show it was introduced earlier. Yeah. I was just playing with it. But that that was the um, the meeting between him and uh, Brother Mazzone right in the street. Make me feel bad toward old Prop Joe. One of the other well, another a specific challenge with this episode was we shot this in April, and it's taking place at Christmas time. So this is April in Baltimore. So we had to strategically frame out. You can just start to see leaves and flowers, but we, we were constantly battling not showing that it was spring. Like this shot right here, I can tell you, if you panned off six inches left or right in that big wide shot, you'd see trees in full bloom. Mm-hmm. flowers and so we we're trying to make this was really this scene in particular was very difficult because with this Marlowe's layer it's surrounded by vegetation and we had to like pick the one the couple angles where you could show without seeing that it really was spring that's 25 back to Joe from what we were short before this was kind of a awkward season that way because earlier in the year when like uh, we were shooting episode 5 says I remember it takes place around Halloween and episode 5 begins uh like with the kids are telling campfire tales and like their kind of hideout area and uh, the derelict comes by and, and scares them and off they go again it's supposed to be halloween but we shot that in december and i think it was the coldest night of the year and it was like you know under 20 degrees with wind it was brutally cold and we had you know the kids were out there <laughs> dressed like it's like a fall like a fall you know breezy fall evening but it was freezing so it was a constant battle over the season because we were trying to tell it over from like the elect because we were tied into the election that was the whole the time frame that we were stuck with and everything had to flow from that so at certain points we were trying to make it look warmer than it was and then at certain points we were trying to make it look colder than it was we had to play a school year, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and it was and the election was, you know, because we had the election episode six, I think it is. Detect. Where Carcetti wins. Would you get the door for me? <laughs> this was a good payoff to the Lieutenant Marimo character. Sometimes life just gives you a moment, huh? He was gonna do me, and instead he gets done. I'm dipped in shit here. I'm the luckiest motherfucker you know. Gentlemen, Dominic had the hardest time with that dipped in shit line. Did not want to say it. And from the look of things, we're no closer to him <laughs> Did than everything when I he could here not to say it. Ago. Now they might not let me go after murders, but they cannot stop me from chasing the drugs. Leander, I want you surveilling his people. See if they're still up on cell phone. How are you with the paper trail? Okay. I want you down to the city assessment office, pulling paper on all the purchases on the west side over a hundred thousand. Then get down to MVA and check a luxury cars in his name. Right? I have a question, Joe. Again, another question is like regarding the character like Freeman, who in season one is we see him before he even does. His, his his lines are minimal. We just slowly get to know him. Was it always planned out that 
by you know season four he would you know he'd be running the investigation he would come out as being like the really great cop is that always a planned thing or did it just sort of evolve over the course of seasons it evolved and and uh, of course a lot of it has to do with the actor when an actor starts rising with the material and showing you things that that you didn't know when you cast him Basically, what I'm saying is his his role got elevated as well, and he became a bigger part of the team. Right. But what we do is we get before the season, we get uh, together well before the season, and we start discussing the characters' arcs, where they're going to end up at the end of that year, where they start, where they end up, so on. He has become more and more of a leader every year. To the point where, in the season that we're filming now, he's really... Um, um, I don't want to give it away, but let's say he almost goes too far with it. Yeah. That kid was stolen, man. What? Out the back of your basement? They kicked my motherfucking door, and that's how they do. I think, you know, when I wrote this scene, I didn't realize this kid was going to be so uh, young. How the fuck ass bitch. That's how they know. I'm going to find his ass, too. It's a little Feliso. He's great. The sweet little kid. He plays like the, the toughest kid on the block. That's Julito, who plays uh, Naaman, and he has some incredible scenes coming up in this episode. I ain't been in a Polo Johnny's since 1974, and if you knew what was good... And Polo Johnny's is a real Baltimore institution, which I was not aware of. Yeah, this is one of our signature uh, eating scenes in the show. <laughs> I always have to do one, one or two every year. See that? If you're checking out, I might feel the need to say it. The dogs are really good at Polo Johnny's. I did have a couple when I was there when we were doing this. Memory, so of course. You gotta go with the original sauce, not the kraut and chili like you do. No. Oh, ain't about no sauerkraut. Puzzle Palace. Ready to clip any programming tied to statewide tests. The thing is, we just starting to make a little headway in what we're doing. You take it upstairs? Yeah, me and Professor went all the way to go see the school superintendent. And? You read the papers? They a little busy dug in that budget mess. Fifty million in the hole. They're scared to take any more problems with the new mayor. Is your thing a problem? Depends on how you look at it. There's Melvin Williams. Want to tell us a little bit about Melvin? <laughs> you know, Melvin is, is a businessman in town. He's got real estate and he's, you know, he's doing very well, but uh, we thought we'd get him on as an actor also because he has that kind of charisma and we just felt that he could do it naturally. Mm -hmm. Again, he's one of these guys that started out being a cameo and his role got bigger because he was doing such a good job. A nigga, man, stole your shit. Yeah. As soon as he gnawed out, bust him in the head with a brick or some shit. <laughs> and, uh, ain't me. You always give him a hot shot, then. Y'all recall Junior Bunk cutting this shit with, uh, what you call it? Stole it from the funeral home. Oh, you thinking formaldehyde. That's the shit. Niggas got a taste of that shit. University started a Junior Bunk ward. My cousin. Laid his ignorant ass up there too. Now this scene here is at a at a real stable. Baltimore still has these um, these salesmen who go in the street with uh, fresh produce called a rabbers, and this is a, a true a rabber stable uh, in West Baltimore. The guys in here are, are actors. There's one guy who you saw in the master holding the horse. He was one of the stable hands. 
But there was other horses. It's tough to see them in this uh, in the stable in in the shot right here. These shots, but uh, they were all kind of a little antsy. So decided to go handheld in this scene, basically because we were. It was just too hard to get cameras on dollies in there, and was just would be intrude too much on the um, on the space for the horses, and they might kick and or whatnot. So that because we went handheld in that scene, it became kind of a Dave Inslee and I who were working these scenes together. Decided to go, well, let's maybe make the, just to, so it's not just one scene that sort of stands out by itself, maybe we'll do some of the other bubble scenes kind of a handheld way, just to sort of make it a motif for the, that little arc, that storyline in this episode. And we did more of it in the scene where he finds Shira later on. That scene in the uh, A Rapper's Barn, by the way, was written by Chris Collins. He's a guy that we sort of brought up in, in the uh, organization as a writer, and this year he wrote a script for us. And uh, he did a great job. And when he turned in that scene, I didn't touch it. I just, I just gave it to David as it was because he did such a good job. That's great. Yeah, he's a story editor this year too on the show. I mean, so all this Christmas trimming here that you see on the, um, on the steps and whatnot. And you know, I think you see inside was all the stuff we all added. Again, this was shot in April, not, uh, not December. And this was an interesting episode for me to work on also is, I think you saw up in the main titles you saw up front, there was two director photographies. Uh, Russell Fine, who was. Um, our, our, our main one over the course of the season took some time off. He had a baby. And then Dave Inslee, who I'd worked with a lot of on our second unit work, uh, stepped up and did like the, the other half of the episodes. So really, they each shot like six days, I think. And I think it's a tribute to both of them. It all looks really good, and you can't tell like where one's work ends and the other one begins. It was, it's a pretty seamless transition between the two, work with the two guys. And they both, they're both great guys to work with, and they both did excellent work. Now, I saw this scene sort of as a... Um, Getting the gang back together, right. sort of like a magnificent seven, you know. <laughs> and uh, they're going. They're, what they're going to do is they're going to pull off a, a big job towards the end of the episode. And here again, you uh, you guys dressed Butchie's Bar for Christmas, yeah. huh? Comes Kimmy. <laughs> nice look from Donnie there. And Donnie is another guy who has a history with Ed. Yeah, Donnie goes back with Ed too, and he's been working with us in many capacities on the show since we started. Ed Burns is uh, executive producer and longtime writer on the show. Uh, was a Baltimore police officer for 20-some years. Worked big homicide cases. He was also a Baltimore public uh, school teacher. This actual uh, season was very much, very much Ed Burns. I mean, I don't think this this could have been this year could have been done without Ed, right, Joe? I think that's absolutely right. And here's Maestro, who plays uh, Randy. Hello. Oh, Mr. Presbo. Uh, come in. Please. Oh, that's okay. I just wanted to... Maestro's from Chicago. Stop by on my way home and drop off Randy's work for next week. Hopefully, uh... You're always giving shout-outs to Chicago, uh, all, all the time. Maybe so. But we're looking at the possibility of moving him to Booker T. Washington next semester. I hope that isn't... This location, this scene is actually two different locations, if that makes any sense. It'll make more sense when we see the exterior of uh, Randy's house. The shot of, uh... Like, right here, now we're outside, like, the exterior of Randy's house... The shot of uh, Prez is in the same location, but the interior of the house of which he just came out of, it, it really was a shell of a house. There really was nothing. It was like a wall right there where you walk in. So we needed something a little more depth to it. So when we were doing the, the reverse shots back on to Randy and his stepmom, that's at another house actually around the corner. So there's two homes. So every time, and there's another scene where we kind of do a shot, reverse shot, you'll see it's actually two different locations. Long conference call. About an hour so far by my watch. Where's this? This is in uh, Baltimore. This is the courthouse. Right in the wood. Unfortunately, the governor's phone call has gone longer than anticipated. 
Can I get you anything? Coffee? Look, I have other appointments. It shouldn't be much longer. It's a great space, though. And all the marble, it's really rich looking. And it is the closest, in terms of just the architecture, what, uh, state what the, house. Uh, the state house in Minneapolis, yeah. So is it, it's it, if, not exactly the same, of course, but it, it feels the same. ...the question the Baltimore school system's ability to manage itself, as well as the local oversight of the system, unquote. Motherfucker. <laughs> He's playing in the D.C. suburbs. He sees you coming for him two years from now. He ain't no fool. All electronic requisitions right there. Mm -hmm. Are there sequences or, or storylines that you that you that are easier for you to write, George? Like say, like the like the detail work versus the politics, or this, or I mean, this year was the schools, or is there some stuff that just comes easier to you, or that you're more familiar with, or is it all kind of a challenge and you, you just have to dive in? How's that beach house coming, huh? The, the stuff with the kids was I really enjoyed writing, and it came kind of easy and. Uh, of course, the bar scenes, which we have many, are just guys sitting in bars talking mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, talking about the case and also talking about women and all that stuff. That's, that stuff's all natural for me. That Sergeant Houck is one of the most effective supervisors in our police department. The political element of this show has been kind of difficult for me to write because I'm not particularly interested Sorry. in how that works. a little longer than we expected. And I resisted it too in the beginning. You know, I, did, I resisted that thread to come into our show. But David was actually right. It's it's made our show a lot richer to have that because what it did is it kind of shows everybody how things work. Mm -hmm. You know, when people talk about well, how are we going to fix the problems? Well, the schools have to get better, or or um, you know, the home lives have to get better, and all this sort of thing. But you know, you can't ignore the fact that that the uh, politics are involved. The police are involved. Every everything sort of fits together into this into this puzzle of of decimation in, in not just in Baltimore but all these urban East Coast cities. You've got your third and to bring the politics into it actually completed what we were trying to do and say about all these things. Which is not to say that I got any better at writing those scenes. Mm -hmm. I pretty much turn them in and then uh, David rewrites them. <laughs> you just appreciate them more. <laughs> But this is the stuff I like, the stuff with the kids in yeah. the schools. And, um, and like you said, man, we were really blessed to have some great actors in here. Uh, really? Like all these, like even the, you know, we have our four main kids we follow, but even like the kids in this project classroom, you know, maybe working a day, an episode or what, you know, whatever. But they're all, like are the kids in just in Prez's class, they're, they're just all, they just brought so much to it. Yeah, I love this moment here when he has to turn. He's cutting up. He has to turn to the blackboard because yeah. he's getting ready to smile. You know, family, also to have intimacy. What do you it was such a great. I mean, Prez was, was a great role for Jim True Frost, but in all the you know the previous three seasons, but this season it was just you know the way it, the character turned and the way he played it was really fantastic. It can be fun, you know, like. When you tickle your partner. Because we'd always present a goof, I mean, Prez is kind of a goofball. Right. And uh, now he's a real guy, and you like him, and, and you're rooting for him. And he wa You know, he wants to do the right thing. Right, he landed where he was supposed yeah. to be. He never should have been a cop. Absolutely. The statewide exam is next week, and then we'll, we'll get back to the regular lessons. Can we talk about embassy? If you like, and if I don't get too embarrassed. 
I mean, like all these kids. I mean, other than like, I think um, Julito, who was name on, was from New York. Uh, Tristan, uh, who's Michael's from New York. Maestro from Chicago, as I said earlier. But all these other kids are from the Baltimore, D.C. area. And had never, for most of them, I think I'd never been in front of a camera before. And if you go back and look at episode, you know, the first, well, I think episode three is the first time we go into school. But just how they got more comfortable with everything over the course of the season, it's just amazing to watch just on that level. We start opening those houses, we might turn over a couple of dozen bodies. But that's just me guessing. All of them homicides? The boy took over half the West Side. We never saw the violence. This right here is the reason why. You're asking us to call out half a public... Another thing I try to do this season, with this penultimate episode, same thing we did in the penultimate one for season three, is I try to approach the episode as if... the if I think I said this in the last... In the, the DVD thing we did last year, but if, if the season's one long story, we are now in our climax mode here. We, you know, we're paying everything off, so I just try to keep... I mean, part of the aesthetic of the show is to keep the camera moving anyway, but I, he would... made a conscious effort to you know, do more push-ins on people, just to build all this, because it's all building to the payoff that's going to come later in this episode and then in episode 13. But that's the way I, like, as opposed when I directed this season, the the very first episode, 401, it's just, you're, you know, you're laying the groundwork for it, so it has a whole different, I think it has a whole different rhythm to it, as opposed to these episodes right. later on, because it's like writing a book, I would imagine, your opening chapters are setting everything up, then your plot kicks in, and then you're paying it off here at the end, so that's the way I kind of Try to approach directing it. Right. The equivalent of uh, the prose style would be the, the sentences get more, they get leaner, more muscular. The, the pace accelerates in the actual writing of the book. Yeah. And you're doing that with the camera. Trying Same to do thing. It, yeah, exactly. Okay, I get it. He's still tied up, but it really should only be a little while longer. Can you tell the governor I have to go back to Baltimore? I have uh, a little bit of business today. I'm the mayor of a major American city, for Christ's sakes. How much shit do I have to eat from this guy? Would you play now, the guard you're about to, we're about to meet here is actually was actually the governor of Maryland, Robert Early. No oversight either. And I'm not telling the Washington fucking Post talking about how he might be forced to bail me out because, because, what was the quote again? Because those we are extended an invitation to the, uh, to the mayor of the, at the time we shot this, Martin O'Malley, who declined to appear. And he ended up taking this man's job. He was elected uh, in 2006. 54 million is a big number. You said O'Malley didn't like us much, Joe? I, I don't think he did. But I'd never met the man, so I can't speak for him. Bubbles is preparing a hot shot for his uh, tormentor. This is also a great season for Andre Royo. I mean, what he goes through. Did I do something wrong? Unbelievable. I ain't acted up or nothing. You're ready for this. You can do the work. Now that that moment right there, where Prez puts his arm on Dookie's shoulder, is a key moment. I know David Simon. I don't know. I don't know if you guys wrote it in the script, but uh, you'll see there's certain points in the episode where the an adult character will try to comfort or console a, one of the kids. 
with a gesture like that, try to put their arm, you know, put their arm on the shoulder. Then Carver does it with Randy in the end. Bob Wisdom. Yeah, and then uh, and but Bob wasn't but with name on he's the one he who doesn't do it. He's the one who can't do it. And uh, and I forget the we'll find it. I guess we'll see here. Like maybe it's Cuddy with Michael later on where they try to put their hand on the kid to sort of like just to to console them in some way or make them feel better. And like and those are three false moves. And the one one the one that really works or the one that ends up working is the one where the guy can't put his arm on the kid's shoulder because he can't promise a. A promising future. It's going to be. It's not going to. He knows it could not work out. Hey, boy. What's up? Big day for you. See here, I got the inventory divided between us. You gonna go up one way towards North Avenue? I'm gonna stay down by the highway. You gonna let me handle the money alone? You ready, ain't you? Yeah, I'm good. All right. Let's get on it. I'll see you back here tonight. All right. Hey, hey, you see that foul motherfucker? You let him have his money, okay? I don't need you messing with him. All right. All right. Make sure that counts right. Yo, I need to talk to the little motherfucker. Maybe you could do that with me. See it don't get out of hand. Hey, yo, Mike. Yo, what up, dude? There's our three, three of our leads right there, the kids. Again, another scene where it's, we're trying to make it feel like winter, but it's, this is like a 70-degree day. Kids are sweating. How many? As a theory, Detective Freeman believes there could be additional bodies in those vacants, maybe a dozen or more. He believes? Lester Freeman is not in the habit of selling wolf tickets. That was a question that came up on set, wolf tickets. That's sort of a local expression. It means uh, he don't play, he don't lie. We pull the bodies now before New Year's, and the stats go to Royce's last year in office. You know, this is a um, this is a complicated show to write, Joe. And and what happens is is that your best intentions always in the beginning of the season are are to get as many episodes written as you can and get a jump on things. But what happens is that everything sort of changes so much during the season. Plot points, actors, you know, anything mm -hmm. you can think of, that by this point in the season, when we're coming down to the, to the wire the last few episodes, we're really writing close to the time that we're, right. we're going to be shooting. And uh, everybody's job gets a little bit harder. Pressure time is on. And because there's so many beats, what we call beats, which are actual scenes in, a, in an episode, we're trying to cram a lot in, and we end up we end up working harder than a lot of other uh, other TV shows do. I mean, this show actually has a reputation around the industry of being, you know, when somebody says, "Well, you know, I want to go work, work for the Wire," and then they'll they'll say to them, "Well, are you aware that they work sixteen hour days?" You know, that kind of thing. Yo, man, listen, me and Bug got our own spot, so you can come crib with us if you want. I try to make the uh, city as much of a character as anybody else in the show is. It is because it is a character. What you mean Canard took the stash? And he's still walking around? This is Sandy uh, McCree who plays um, Julito's mom. And... Right, now she's, she's a very nice person. 
on the set. On the so set, yeah, and, she's a sweetheart. And uh, but she really plays a despicable, does such a good job of being, you know, a despicable mother here. And this is an example of another scene where Julito came in so prepared. When she slaps him and there's that amazing look on his face, you'll see. That was the first take. What he done got him locked up. This is look and he comes back. It's there's that. And this rea- next reaction's amazing. And he gonna walk out one. But you out here, weighing his name, acting a bitch. Oh, look at you, crying next. It's so good. And I was concerned, you know, he, I think Cooley, when we shot this, was Fuck you think 14, maybe 15, might have been 15 at this point. And, you know, he in this episode, he gets basically punked by everybody. Right. And, you know, for a 15-year-old boy, it's a lot to sort of like... You don't even want to play that as an actor. I, absolutely. But he was such a pro. And, he, you know, he was... And we, I talked to him a little about it. And I said, are you comfortable doing this? Are you, are you cool with it? And, he, you know, he's a professional actor. And he's like, it's just a character. It's not me. Yeah. And uh, he just embraced it and went with it. Jimmy, that's you. Again, I know adult actors would have trouble doing that. They would not be able to separate their own persona from the part. just wrong. Yeah, just like... Well, you know, you bring up a good point, though. The uh, This is the kind of show that... I don't have any problem with kids watching this show because kids know what time it is out there. I mean, they really know more than you think they know, but it's a good idea to watch this with your kids because you get... I heard comments from teenage boys in my neighborhood that were watching the show, and, and they were they were saying things like, I don't like him anymore, he's a bitch, yeah. you know? yeah. And I was trying to tell him that it was a little more complicated <laughs> than that. So I'm sure he did get a little bit of that out on the street when he was out there, you know. It's a tough thing for a kid to play. Absolutely. Now this is one of those bar scenes that we always get to write, you know, guys drinking. and There's one line in here that I've been trying to get into the show for three years about an inverted heart. There you go, there's a nice shot. I kept putting it in the script and putting it in the script. David kept cutting it out. He finally slid it in there, but I think it's mixed so low in the uh, <laughs> in the sound mix that you really got to uh, try work to get it. Hey, yo, Kanan. Why you lying to me? This is another incredible scene. Little Thalisa here who gets gets his head handed to him. Again, he took these blows. I mean, in terms of, you know, it was all staged and choreographed, but totally sold him. Jeff Gibson, our stunt corner, worked with these guys, and it's just so brutal. Again, when I wrote this, I didn't realize that character was that young. So when I saw it up on screen, it was um, kind of shocking that Michael would beat him up like that. Right. And it really drove the point home, too, that what Michael was becoming in this episode and, and the split between him and his friends. I love the way he repeats that. I don't want it. And that was again. That was written in there, mm-hmm. but it just really punctuates it. If you look closely, I think you can see the actor's eyes move. They just did. This was a scene we shot in on second unit, but actually we shot this back in March, before we began principal photography on the episode. Uh, no, 
and that was due to Dominic West's availability. We didn't have him for the whole season. He only came in three different times over the course of shooting the season, and we had to shoot all his scenes for various episodes within those three times. This is one of the few scenes where it's actually cold outside and plays in December. Maybe not this time. Daniels is CID. It's a new day downtown. Ooh, world is on this hole where Jimmy McNulty is the most qualified to drive. Yeah, up is down, black is white, left is right. I like the way Dave Vinsley lit that. A lot of silhouettes let things just kind of go into shadow. Here we are with bubbles and back in that handheld mode I talked about earlier. There's a payoff to the scene in the stable. Right there is one of the few jump cuts you'll ever see in this show. Yeah, why'd you do that? Basically for time. Because it took him a long time to come around. And uh, I mean, I love the cut now. And then I see, and there's another time cut there, which we don't normally do. Usually we let things play out in real time. Now we're back out in front of Randy's house, and this is all make a little more sense in terms of that geography I talked about earlier. Right cool. Mrs. Carver talking to the cops who are staking out the house. And that red house there on the end is Randy's home, which we established in episode 401. There was that scene where Randy's up on the steps thinking after he fingers Lex. Sergeant Carver. But again, this interior now is a different location. It's a different, it's a house around the block. So the shot there on Seth is the real exterior, but this reverse is a different house. Gotcha. You going to school this morning? We're going to wait a little longer on that to be sure. But I can't say I'm comfortable going to work every day and leaving him here. Blow over in a week or so, you'll see. Till then, we still have a call. I think here's where he says we're going to take care of you. (laughs) We're going to look out for you on this. There you go. He doesn't believe him. No, but I got You have time for a plate, I'm sure. Sure. It's a great look for Maestro. Yo. I just done something gave me an idea today. Hey, what? And here's something you can we can do on this show, which most shows don't allow you the time. You know, we're setting up what we're about to reveal here about Sherrod, but just to let this sort of play out here on Andre, because just in terms of him getting up, and it seems like forever before he discovers what, you know, where Sherrod is. You know, we're just trying to, you know, it's like just lull the audience into right. the banality of it all until, until the reveal. For people to have light because this was a scene like this, like this moment here. We, well, maybe we could jump cut through this, get to it faster, but, you know, let's let it play out. Because for this look right here that's coming up. Wake up. And Andre plays, it's great. Late. <coughs> Again, another subtle wire beat where we had seen him in the earlier scene put the jacket on the cart. And that the jacket's now on the floor tells him something. Man, come on, Sherrod. Come on, man. Come on. Come on. Motherfuckers, do this, man. 
I think we did a few takes of this. Andre was great in each one. And I think we just went with the first one. Oh, man. No phones? Not a one. And this was a strategic choice right there. Like, this, this master, it's the one time, I think, in the episode, maybe in the whole season, where the camera's locked off. I just wanted everything to sort of stop there, even though this has no, there's no connection to the previous scene. And so we cut to it, it's like, boom, we hit a wall. Right. And I think it really punctuates the what we just saw with Bubbles and Sharon. Which one of you is Sergeant Houck? I am. I'm Shay. This is Thomas, IID. Let me ask if you remember pulling a surveillance camera from ISD. Serial number... AW466J9er. You remember that? We also need to go over your paperwork on a couple of informants. So if you don't mind coming back downtown with us. It's nice to have a decent moment for Herc here. And, uh, yeah, he does a stand up thing. Yeah, takes the hit. Sidnor and the third guy, what's his name? Dozerman. You don't need Sidnor Doze either. And Corey's look is great. On the camera. Reaction. Informants. Me alone. Bodies. How many? Could be quite a few. We won't know until we take down those doors. And this is one drug organization you think did this? That's the theory, but nothing's certain at this point. What is certain is that if we're going to do this, you probably want this to... This whole, the storyline of dumping bodies into vacants. For the New Year. George, is this something that actually happened, or is this based on a true... True crime that happened in Baltimore history, or is this something that scriptwriter's imagination? It happened, obviously. I mean, you know, Ed had a career where he found bodies dumped in bizarre places all over the city. But do it now. It didn't happen to this degree. I don't want to be finding any more bodies come January. But what we were seeing a lot during this period was because of the uh, the CS all the CSI programs on television. Mm -hmm where a lot of the, uh, the killers in the city were getting paranoid about forensics and so on, and they were going to elaborate lengths to uh, dispose of bodies and not leave any clues and so on. So actually, during this season, we were seeing a lot of bodies getting, uh, getting burned up, doused with gasoline and that kind of thing. This is a, a, a small little scene, but I really like this one, the way uh, Jermaine, who plays Dookie, play, you know, how he played it. Very subtle. He got his looks, and just to look back, and you know exactly what he's feeling, and he ain't ever coming back. Choice comes down to this. We take the state money, and instead of being fucked up and broke, our schools go back to being... Mediocre. What I think we did real well in this, in this season was showing how the kids, the personalities of the kids, it didn't really... Well, let me put it to you this way. Michael was probably the strongest out of all of them. And, and probably, in a lot of ways, the smartest, certainly had the most street smarts. And yet, it's almost because of that that he ends up going down the wrong road, because he gets cut from the herd, so to speak, by, uh, by Marlowe. They recognize that in him. Somebody like Dookie, you know, is just a, a good soul, and... He he isn't strong enough to make it yeah. without the support system. If you take it, you're selling out the teachers, and that's my base. If you don't take it, you're selling out the kids. Either way, I think I'll each of the kids had their own challenge as to how to, you know, the, the role they were given to play and the complexity of it. I, I felt, though, that uh, Tristan, who played Michael, actually kind of had the hardest one because he had to be, he's the cool guy. Right. Unless you have that as part of you, who you are, it's tough for an actor to sort of like to be that, to be Steve McQueen or whoever. And so it, 
I think to try to play that was would be impossible. But he just brought enough enough presence of him, of himself that he sold all that stuff. I, I mean, by the time all this starts going down, I believe he's capable of doing all these things, and he's still the guy you would you'd go to if you had a problem. Right. And that's just something you can't learn, or something you can't teach. You just has to be part of it. I'm going back on Friday right after work. But in casting, we, were, we brought all the kids in, and we were looking at all the combinations of who could play this, who could play that. That's like, that was such an intangible. Like, how, you know, can will this come off on film that he is the cool guy? But he certainly grew into the role over the course of the season. Slim Charles. Right, that's San Juan Glover from D.C., a.k.a. the Ghetto Prince. Genghis. <laughs> And uh, that was Robert Chu behind the desk there, who plays Proposition Joe and who was our acting coach for our kids over the season. And he's continued in, into season five also, which is currently filming. George, you wrote this great. I hope I, I did as well as I could with it in terms of our schedule, but in terms of the thriller aspect, and I know you like these, you know, the 70s crime things, and I, I try to embrace that. Yeah, you did. You did a great job, man. I mean, you know, we obviously were on a um, we're on time constraint, budget constraint, and you made it look like big time movie sequence, man. Well, great. When the season began, I don't think Tristan ever boxed before, but again, we worked with him over the course of the whole year. So by the time you get to these scenes here, I you know looks like he knows what he's doing with those gloves in the bag. This was another scene, you know, I, I thought Julito, who plays Neymon, could have trouble with because just what he what he does and what he doesn't do and what happened, how it ends up. And Right. This is the this is the end of him trying to put up that front of false bravado. Right. And he picks on his friend. That makes it even worse. And here Michael steps in. It's a nice shot there. It's a great location, northern Baltimore. The robbery here was shot over two days. We broke it up because of light issues. <laughs> Michael K. Hey, yo, call your friends. Tell them where we at. That's Duster on. Now, when Kimmy comes back and she's reciting those, uh, those what are nonsense words, really, I mean, seems like that's an old uh, salt and pepper tune. That look from Alito there is great. Again, he, he cried, and as was written, and he had no trouble doing it. I love all this cross-cutting, again, built into the script, but the structure of it all, between, you know, back and forth between the gym and here. Just gives it great energy. Oh, 
I wrote this without knowing that a place like this existed. And the reason I bring that up is, you know, these people on locations, you give them fits, man. <laughs> I had them going up a ladder on the side of a building. I mean, they had to find a place like this, and they did a, they did a great job. Yeah, we had a sort of like the geography in terms of how it really plays out. It's different from the way it plays out, hopefully on screen. Like the one building's way, you know, way in the back. I have to give a special thank you to the gentleman here in the blue jacket. His name is Carl Clemens. I think on the day he had, a, he had some problem with some lines. And we worked with him, we got it out, and then he sent me a, uh, a thank you card, like a, about a month later. And I wanted to write him back, but of course I lost, the, I lost the card, I lost his address. So Carl, if you're listening to this, if you ever get this DVD and you listen to this, I want to say thanks again. I really appreciate it, and uh, no problem. Move the van out the way! See, we paint! We paint! Okay. Which one of y'all go open the truck for me? He took a shot in the bus. Fucking amateurs. I think also that scene, I was talking over it, but I, I think that scene has my favorite line, a line about the stink box. <laughs> I'll run you home. I, I can't go home. She expect me to be my father, but I ain't him. I mean, the way he is and shit. Really well written and really well performed. It just ain't him. What's between you and Michael? Mike ain't Mike no more. He went hard on his boy last. Again, time. we might have done t might have done two takes. Fuck I think it's out. the first one that's in the show. I can't go home. Okay. Give us a minute. We got a good group in this scene. Um, you know, I've talked about him before, but Chad Coleman was really great working with him and watching him develop this character of Cuddy over the last couple of years. Very fine actor, fine human being. Name it, dude. Push it. He ain't pushing nothing now. Reckon I'll go man the fence. Deacon, how'd you get by my people? You can't turn away church folk. It ain't done in these parts. Uh, you only come by for a favor. So what is it? You know a fella named Bunny Colvin? Yeah, that uh, rogue police commander tried to legalize drugs. It's a reference to season three. He can tell you best. You do not something positive over there. Bunny. Well, what's this all about? Bob Wisdom grew up in D.C., a place called Petworth. When I uh, edited a short story collection called D.C. Noir, I asked him to come in and write a story for us, and he did a beautiful job. He got papers on him or something? I ain't no kind of police. I'm just looking to get up with him. You ain't alone. He booked on out of here. He got his own spot. Took his little brother with him. You know where he stay at? He ain't tell me nothing. Kind of like the way he kept everything dark there behind her. Mm -hmm. You know, get the impression that... That place where she's staying at isn't <laughs> too nice. What my mom say when you call? That's Shakima who plays the mom, and I don't. First time I'd, I'd met her was in makeup like that, and the one time I saw her like outside the trailer, I was like, "She's a beautiful woman." You just, but you just don't never recognize her. 
And there's that gesture with the um, with the hand on the shoulder. Lovely lady. What's she saying? Put that bitch in baby booking where he belongs. Yeah, I think Randy recoils when uh, yeah, right. he tries to touch him later in the episode. And like I said, I don't know if that was in the script, or, but I know that was something David was, Simon was specifically looking for. Yeah, they beating a the cop over here on Pissy and Gold. Yeah, they beating on him bad. Yo, they find shots now. And the fire that's about to erupt here, we didn't burn this. It's, we didn't do any damage to the house. We'll put that out there. It was just uh, great production work by our presenter, Vince Moranio, and uh, Connie Brink, who's our physical effects person. And this is totally a fire that's on the outside. It looks like we torched the place, but um, no damage. Totally contained. And that transition was written in the script, which is a great one. Put it in the van the Mexican niggas rolled in. I ain't hearing about no resistance. Man, what no time for that. Omar had one of them commando squads <laughs> with him, man. I mean, he had this one hoe pulling guns out of pussy, huh? The shit was unseemly, man. I got a hand in this good. Method man. Yeah. <laughs> see this one coming. He took the shipment, Joe. Not no package, man. The motherfucking shipment, man. What we gonna tell the co-op? Hey, where you think my mind at right now? All I know is a lot of gangsters out of a lot of shit, man. Hey, Russell shot uh, DP on this scene, and I just love the way that everything's so down. It really feels like desperation. room need to take us at our word first. Yeah. Like these guys, these guys are really up against it. It's us. Let me get a word with you, Mike. Listen, you gotta understand, I can't be having no physical confrontation like the one took place back there. That kind of thing got to stay outside my gym. Yeah, go ahead, Marcel. I come to tell you I was wrong, <laughs> the way I handled it. Step off, nigga. Mike. Don't touch me, man. There, there, was, there, there, was that, there was that gesture there. This here ain't you. Man, I don't want you touching on him. Mike. told you step the fuck off. Young man, if I was talking to you, you'd know I was. That's a great line, and the way he, I love the way he reads that. Shit! Nah, man. Go with your people. Go ahead, son. Good looks. There's, a, there's this hallway scene coming up where he's in this, this hall. Mm-hmm. It sort of looks almost like a Kubrick film or something, the way he did it. To explain how you did that with the depth and everything, and the, it's really uh, 
it's really kind of beautiful the way you know you shot that. Well, first of all, we had a great hallway. Let me start with that. It was really long and had like the bank of fluorescent lights. So, when I think of a Kubrick thing, I think you think of all that symmetry. And we just play, you know we put a you know, wider lens on. It might be like a seventeen five here, and it just the, the hallway just kind of works itself. You know, it has that great sort of your eye just goes right to down. And I love the way Dave. Well, we blocked this as you'll see is like when it's he's in white light and as soon as he came in that threshold he was down carver right and then he stays down then when he exits you'll see the same thing where he kind of goes out of the out of the shade into the into the light at all but basically it's just a it's a great hallway with a wide angle lens and just playing the symmetry of it all the angles i'm going to talk to social services we'll get you some help There's that gesture. You might have seen like this, George. Like, is your first draft like long, and you find yourself pulling stuff out, or is it just like you know going in like less is more in terms of how should ball play? I think so. You tr you at this point you're trusting your actors and. You gonna look out for me? I mean, look at that. And there he goes. He goes from that. That was what I talking about earlier. Like when he's in, yep. in shadow, and then he goes out into the light. Then we just do a slow boom down on the dolly. You gonna look out for me? You promise? You got my back, huh? It's a good one. Yeah, and we did the same thing on the last shots we did in the, the penultimate one in season three, where we left Stringer on the floor. We kind of we hung in that as long as we could within our running time, just to give it that much more weight and effect. Uh, this has been Joe Chappelle, the director. George Pelicanus saying uh, goodbye to Joe, one of the favorite directors, one of my best directors I've ever worked with, man. Seriously. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. <laughs>